Chapter Five, Part One of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Five, Part One. The blonde Venus was being performed for the thirty-fourth time at the Variety Theatre. The first act had just ended. Simone got up as a washerwoman was in the green room, standing before a mirror placed between the two doors that opened onto the passage leading to the dressing rooms. She was all alone and lighted by the naked flames of the gas jets on either side. Was occupied in improving her makeup by passing a finger under her eyes. Do you know if he's arrived yet? Asked Prullière, who entered in his costume of a Swiss admiral with his long sword, his high boots, and his immense plume. Whom do you mean? Said Simone, without disturbing herself and laughing at the glass so as to see her lips. The prince. I don't know. I'm going down. Ah, so he's coming. He comes then every day. Brulière walked up to the fireplace which faced the mirror and in which a coke was burning. Two gas jets were flaring away on either side. He raised his eyes and looked at the clock and the barometer, placed to the right and the left, and accompanied by gilded sphinxes in the style of the empire. Then he buried himself in a vast, high-backed armchair, the green velvet of which, worn and soiled by four generations of actors, had here and there turned to a yellowish hue, and he remained there immovable. His eyes vaguely gazing into space, in the weary and resigned attitude of actors accustomed to the waits between their cues. Old Bosque had just made his appearance, coughing and shuffling his feet, and wrapped in an old yellow box coat which had slipped off one shoulder and displayed King Dagobert's laminated golden cassock. For an instant, after having placed his crown on the piano without saying a word, he angrily stamped his feet, looking all the while, however, a thoroughly good-natured fellow, with his hands slightly shaking from an overabuse of alcohol, whilst a long white beard gave a venerable appearance to his inflamed, tippling-looking face. Then, as the silence was broken by a shower of rain and hail striking against the panes of the large square window which looked on to the courtyard, he made a gesture of disgust. "What beastly weather!" he grunted. Neither Simon nor Prullière moved. On the walls, four or five pictures, landscapes, and a portrait of Vernet, the actor, were gradually turning yellow through the heat of the gas. On the shaft of a column, a bust of Potier, one of the old glories of the Variety Theatre, looked on with its empty eyes. But there suddenly arose the sounds of a voice. It was Fontaine in his second-act dress, that of a stylish young man, clothed all in yellow and with yellow gloves on his hands. I say. He cried, gesticulating. "Don't you know? It's my saint's day today." "Is it now, really?" asked Simon, going up to him with a smile, as though attracted by his long nose and his big comical mouth. "Were you then christened Achille?" "Exactly." "And I'm going to tell Madame Bro to bring up some champagne after the second act." For a moment past, a bell had been heard tingling in the distance. The prolonged sound died away and then returned. And when the bell finally left off ringing, a cry resounded, which went up and down the staircase and was lost in the passages. The overture's on for the second act. The overture's on for the second act. This cry at length approached the green room, and a pale little man passed before the door, shouting at the top of his shrill voice, "The overture's on for the second act." The deuce, champagne," said Prullière, without seeming to have noticed the row. You are going it fine. Were I you, I'd have it sent in from the cafe," slowly observed Old Busk, who had seated himself on a bench covered with green velvet, his head resting against the wall. But Simon said they ought not to forget Madame Bron's little profit. 
She clapped her hands, delighted, devouring Fontan with her eyes, whilst his goat-like face kept moving with the continual play of the eyes, nose, and mouth. Oh, that Fontan, she murmured. There is nobody like him. There is nobody like him. The two doors were wide open, showing the passage leading to the dressing-rooms, and along the yellow wall, vividly lighted up by an unseen gas-lamp, shadows were rapidly passing of men in various costumes, women half-naked wrapped in shawls, all the course of the second act with the masqueraders of the boule noire, and from the end of the passage one could hear the sound of their feet stamping on the five wooden steps which led on to the stage. As tall Clarisse rapidly passed by, Simone called to her, but she answered that she would be back in a minute. And, in fact, she returned shortly afterwards, shivering in the thin tunic and sash which formed Iris's costume. "'By Jove,' said she, "'it isn't very warm, and I've been and left my fur cloak in my dressing-room.' Then, standing before the fire, warming her legs, the tights covering which showed the colour of the flesh beneath, she continued, "'The prince has arrived.' "'Ah!' exclaimed the others inquisitively. "'Yes, I went to ascertain. I wanted to see.' He is in the first stage-box on the right, the same as on Thursday. Well, it's the third time he's been in a week. Isn't she lucky, Nana? I had bet that he wouldn't come again. Simone opened her mouth, but her words were drowned by a fresh cry which burst out close to the green room. The shrill voice of the old call-boy shouted along the passage, The curtain is going up! Three times? Well, it's becoming something surprising said Simone, as soon as she could be heard. You know he won't go to her place. He takes her to his. And it seems it costs him a pretty penny. Why, of course. One must pay for one's enjoyments, maliciously observed Brillière, rising to glance into the glass at his well-formed figure, which created such havoc among the occupants of the boxes. The curtain's rising! The curtain's rising! repeated the old call-boy in the distance as he hurried along the different passages. Then Fontan, who knew what had taken place the first time between the prince and Nana, related the story to the two women who were squeezing up against him, and laughed very loud each time he stooped to give them certain details. Old Busk, full of indifference, hadn't moved. Such tales as that didn't interest him. He was stroking a big tortoise-shell cat curled up asleep on the bench and he ended by taking it in his arms with the tender simplicity of a crazy king. The cat arched its back. Then, after sniffing a considerable while at his long white beard, disgusted apparently by the smell of the gum, it returned to the bench, where, curling itself up, it soon fell asleep. Busk remained solemn and thoughtful. All the same, if I were you, I would have the champagne from the café. It will be much better said he suddenly to Fontan as the latter finished his story. "'The curtain's up!' drawlingly exclaimed the old call-boy in a cracked tone of voice. "'The curtain's up! The curtain's up!' The cry lasted for an instant and then died away. There was a sound of scurrying footsteps, then the sudden opening of the door at the end of the passage admitted a blast of music, a distant hubbub, and the door closed again with a dull thud. Once more a heavy quiet reigned in the green room, as though it were a hundred miles away from the crowded audience that was applauding vociferously. Simone and Clarisse were still talking of Nana. She never hurried herself. Only the night before she missed her entrance cue. But they stopped speaking as a tall girl thrust her head in at the door, then, seeing she had made a mistake, hurried off to the end of the passage. 
It was Satin, wearing a bonnet and veil and looking like a lady out visiting. A pretty piece of goods, murmured Prulière, who had constantly been in the habit of seeing her for a year past at the Café des Variétés. And Simone related how Nana, having come across Satin, an old schoolfellow of hers, had taken a great fancy to her and was bothering Bordeneuve to bring her out. Hello! Good evening! said Fontan, shaking hands with Faucherie and Mignon, who had just entered. Even old Bosque held out a finger whilst the two women embraced Mignon. Is there a good house tonight? inquired Faucherie. Oh, superb! answered Prulière. You should see how they're all taking it in. I say, my children, remarked Mignon, it's time for you to go on, isn't it? Yes, shortly. They did not appear till the fourth scene. Bosque alone rose, with the instinct of an old veteran of the boards who scents his cue from afar. And at that moment the old callboy appeared at the door. Monsieur Bosque, Mademoiselle Simone, he cried. Simone quickly threw a fur cloak over her shoulders and hastened out. Bosque, without hurrying himself, fetched his crown and banged it on his head. Then, dragging his mantle after him, he went off unsteady on his legs, grunting, and with the annoyed look of a man who has been disturbed. "'You said some very kind things in your last article,' remarked Fontan to Faucherie. "'Only, why did you state that comedians are vain?' "'Yes, youngin, why did you say that?' exclaimed Mignon, bringing his enormous hands down on the journalist's slender shoulders so roughly that the latter sank beneath the shock. Prulière and Clarisse with difficulty refrained from laughing. For some time past, the members of the company had been highly amused by a comedy that was being performed behind the scenes. Mignon, rendered furious by his wife's infatuation, disgusted at seeing that Faucherie never contributed towards their expenses anything more than a questionable publicity, had conceived the brilliant idea of avenging himself by overwhelming the journalist with various proofs of his friendship. Every evening, when he met him behind the scenes, he quite belabored him with blows as though carried away by an excess of affection, and a Faucherie looking most puny beside this colossus was obliged to submit, smiling the while in a constrained manner, so as not to quarrel with Rose's husband. "'Ah, my fine fellow, so you insult Fontan,' resumed Mignon, continuing the farce. "'Attention! One, two, and full in the chest!' He had struck out and hit the young man so severe a blow that the latter remained for an instant very pale and quite speechless. But with a wink of her eye, Clarisse drew the other's attention to Rose Mignon, who was standing in the doorway. Rose had seen all that had passed. She went straight up to the journalist as though unaware of her husband's presence, and, standing on tiptoe, her arms bare and in her baby costume, she offered her forehead to him with a childish pout. "'Good evening, baby,' said Faucherie, familiarly kissing her. That was his reward. Mignon pretended not to notice the embrace. Everyone kissed his wife at the theater, but he laughed as he cast a rapid glance at the journalist. The latter would certainly pay dearly for Rose's temerity. The door of the passage opened and shut, admitting the sound of tempestuous applause into the green room. Simone had returned after going through her scene. Oh, old Busk made such a hit, cried she. The prince was wriggling with laughter and he applauded just like the others as though he had been paid to do so. I say, do you know the tall gentleman who is sitting beside the prince in the stage box? A handsome man, looking most dignified, and he's got such lovely whiskers. It's Count Mufa, replied Faucherie. 
I know that the day before yesterday at the Empress's the prince invited him to dinner for this evening. He probably prevailed upon him to come here afterwards. Count Mufa, why, we know his father-in-law, don't we, Augustus? asked Rose of Mignon. You know the Marquis de Choir at whose house I went to sing? He is also here tonight. I noticed him at the back of a box. He's an old... Prulière, who had just placed the hat with the enormous plume on his head, turned round and called to her. Hi, Rose, look sharp. She hurried after him without finishing her sentence. At this moment, the doorkeeper of the theatre, Madame Bron, passed by, carrying an enormous bouquet. Simone jokingly asked if it was for her, but the old woman, without answering, indicated with her chin the door of Nana's dressing-room at the end of the passage. That Nana! How they covered her with flowers! Then, as she returned, Madame Bron handed a letter to Clarisse, who muttered an oath beneath her breath. Again, that confounded La Faloise! There was a fellow who wouldn't leave her alone. And when she heard that the gentleman was waiting in the doorkeeper's room, she exclaimed, Tell him I'll come down when the act is over. I mean to smack his face. Fontaine rushed forward, shouting, Madame Bron, listen. Now listen, Madame Bron. After the act, bring up six bottles of champagne. But the old callboy reappeared quite out of breath, repeating in a sing-song voice, Everyone on the stage! Everyone on the stage! Be quick, Monsieur Fontan! Be quick! Be quick! Yes, yes, I'm going, old Barillot, replied Fontan, quite bewildered, and running after Madame Bron, he continued. Now you understand. Six bottles of champagne in the green room after the act. It's my saint's day. I'm going to stand treat. Simone and Clarisse had gone off, making a great noise with their skirts. When they had all left and the door at the end of the passage was once more closed, one could hear in the silence of the green room the sound of a fresh shower striking against the window panes. Berriot, a little pale old man who had been call-boy at the theatre for thirty years past, went familiarly up to Mignot and offered him his snuff-box. This pinch of snuff offered and accepted procured him a minute's rest in his continual running up and down the stairs and passages. There was still, to be sure, Madame Nana, as he called her, but she only did as she chose and never cared a fig for the fines. When she chose to miss her cue, she missed it. He stopped suddenly, murmuring in astonishment. Why, here she is. She's actually ready. She must know that the prince is there. Nana had indeed appeared in the passage dressed as a fisherwoman, her arms and face all white, excepting two dabs of color under her eyes. She did not enter the green room, but simply nodded to Mignon and Faucherie. "'Good day. How are you?' Mignon alone shook the hand she held out, and Nana continued on her way in queenly style, followed by her dresser, who, as she trod close on her heels, bent down to give a finishing touch to the folds of her skirt. Then behind the dresser, bringing up the rear of the procession, came Satin, trying to look very ladylike and really feeling bored to death. "'And Steiner?' suddenly queried Mignon. Monsieur Steiner left yesterday for the Loiret, said Barillot, who was returning to the stage. I believe he is going to purchase a country residence there. Ah, yes, I know. An estate for Nana. Mignon became very grave. That Steiner had once promised Rose a mansion. Well, it was of no use quarreling with anybody. It was an opportunity which he had lost and which he must regain. 
Full of thought, but still quite master of himself, Mignon walked up and down from the fireplace to the mirror. There were only he and Faucherie left in the green room. The journalist, feeling tired, had just stretched himself out in the easy chair, and he kept very quiet, his eyes half-closed beneath the glances which the other gave him as he passed to and fro. When they were alone, Mignon disdained to pummel him. What would have been the use, as no one would have been there to enjoy the fun? He cared too little about the matter to find any amusement for himself in playing the bantering husband. Faucherie, thankful for this short respite, was languidly stretching his legs out before the fire as his eyes wandered from the barometer to the clock. Mignon interrupted his walk for a moment and stood before the bust of Potier which he looked at without seeing. Then he went and placed himself at the window opening onto the dark courtyard beneath. It had left off raining, and a profound silence had succeeded, whilst the atmosphere had become closer through the heat of the coke fire and the flaring of the gas jets. Not a sound could be heard from the stage. The staircase and the passages were as still as the tomb. It was the hushed peacefulness occasioned by the end of an act, when all the company are on the stage joining in the deafening uproar of some finale, whilst the empty green room is under the influence of asphyxia. "'Oh, the strumpets!' suddenly exclaimed Baudonnave in a hoarse voice. He had only just arrived, and he was already bellowing at two of his chorus girls, who had almost fallen down on the stage through playing the fool. When he saw Mignon and Faucherie, he called to them to show them something. The prince had just requested permission to compliment Nana in her dressing-room between the acts. But as he was taking them on to the stage, the stage manager passed. "'Just find those hussies, Fernand and Maria!' shouted Baudonnet furiously. Then calming himself and trying to look dignified like a father and a nobleman, after passing his handkerchief over his face, he added, "'I will go and receive his highness!' The curtain fell amidst thunders of applause. Immediately there was a regular stampede in the semi-obscurity of the stage, no longer under the glare of the footlights. The actors and the supers were hastening to reach their dressing-rooms, whilst the carpenters were rapidly changing the scenery. Simone and Clarisse, however, remained at the back of the stage whispering together. During the last scene between two of their lines they had just arranged a little affair. Clarisse, after thinking the matter over, preferred not to see La Faloise, who no longer wished to leave her to go with Gaga. It would be better for Simone quietly to explain to him that it was not the thing to stick to a woman to that extent. In short, she was to send him about his business. Then Simone, dressed as a washerwoman in a comic opera, with her fur cape thrown over her shoulders, descended the narrow winding staircase with its greasy stairs and its damp walls, which led to the doorkeeper's room. This room, situated between the actor's and manager's staircases, shut in on the right and the left by some glass partitioning, was like a huge transparent lantern inside which two gas-jets were flaring high. A set of pigeon-holes was crammed full of letters and newspapers. On the table bouquets of flowers were lying beside forgotten dirty plates and an old bodice, the buttonholes of which the doorkeeper was occupied in mending. And in the midst of all this disorder similar to the confusion of a lumber-room, some fashionable gentlemen, stylishly dressed and wearing light kid gloves, occupied the four old rush-bottomed chairs with patient and submissive looks and quickly turning their heads each time Madame Bron returned from the interior of the theatre with answers for them. She had just handed a note to a young man who hastened to open it beneath the gas-jet in the hall, and who turned slightly pale as his eyes encountered this classic phrase, which he had so often read before in the same place. Not tonight, Ducky. I'm engaged. 
Lefervoise was on one of the chairs at the end of the room between the table and stove. He seemed ready to pass the evening there, looking rather anxious, though, and keeping his long legs under his chair because a litter of little black kittens were gamboling around him, whilst the mother sat staring at him with her yellow eyes. "'What? You here, Mademoiselle Simone? Whatever do you want?' asked the doorkeeper. Simone wished La Valoise to be sent out to her, but Madame Bron could not see to this at once. In a sort of deep cupboard under the stairs, she kept a little bar where the supers came to drink between the acts, and as she then had four or five big fellows there, still dressed as masqueraders at the Boule Noire, all of them in a great hurry and clamoring for drink, she was a little bit flurried. By the aid of the gas that was blazing away in the cupboard, one could distinguish a table covered with a sheet of tin and several shelves stocked with partly emptied bottles. When the door of this coal-hole was opened, there issued from it a violent stench of alcohol, which mingled with the smell of burnt fat that always pervaded the room and the strong perfume of the bouquets left on the table. So, resumed the doorkeeper when she had finished serving the supers, it's the little dark fellow over there that you want to speak to? No, don't be absurd, said Simone. It's the thin one sitting beside the stove, the one your cat's snuffing the trousers of and she led la faloise into the hall whilst the other gentleman though half suffocating appeared as resigned as ever and the supers stood drinking on the stairs indulging among themselves in a good deal of noisy drunken horseplay upstairs bordenave was yelling at the scene-shifters who were still engaged in changing the scenery they were such a time it was done on purpose the prince would receive some of it on his head now then shove away all together exclaimed the chief of the gang at length the drop scene at the back was raised and the stage was free. Mignon, who had been watching Faucherie, seized this opportunity of continuing his delicate attentions. He caught him up in his strong arms, crying out, Take care! That pole almost fell on you! And he carried him off and even shook him before placing him on the ground again. Faucherie turned pale as the workman roared with laughter, his lips quivered, and he was on the point of giving vent to his passion whilst Mignon went on in a most good-natured sort of way, slapping him affectionately on the shoulder, almost hard enough to double him up, and saying each time, "'You know I am very anxious about your health. By Jove, I should be in a fine way if any accident happened to you.' But a whisper passed from mouth to mouth, "'The prince! The prince!' and everyone looked towards the little door that gave access to the auditorium. At first one could only see Baldenave's round back and his butcher's neck, as he puffed and blowed and bent himself double in a series of obsequious bows. Then appeared the prince, tall and strong, wearing a fair beard, his complexion of a deep rose color, and looking altogether like a solid man about town, whose well-shaped figure was discernible beneath an irreproachably fitting overcoat. He was followed by Count Muffat and the Marquis de Choir. The corner of the theatre where they were was very dark, and they almost disappeared among the big ever-moving shadows. To speak to this son of a queen, the future inheritor of a throne, Baldenave had adopted the tones of a lion-tamer's voice trembling with a pretended emotion. He kept saying, If your highness will kindly follow me, will your highness deign to pass this way? "'Your Highness, please do take care.' The prince did not hurry himself in the least. On the contrary, he waited and watched the scene-shifters with a good deal of interest. A float had just been lowered from the flies, and the row of flaring gas-jets encompassed in wire network shed a brilliant light upon the stage. 
Mifa, never having been behind the scenes of a theatre before, was especially lost in astonishment, and was seized with an unpleasant sensation, a vague repugnance mixed with fear. He looked up towards the flies where other floats, the gaslights of which were turned down, appeared like so many constellations of little blue stars, in all the chaos of the light wooden framework, and the ropes and pulleys of different sizes of the hanging stages, and the backdrop spread out aloft looking like immense cloths hung out to dry. Let go! suddenly exclaimed the head scene shifter. And the prince himself was obliged to warn the count. One of the drop scenes was being lowered. They were placing the scenery of the third act, the grotto in Mount Etna. Some men were fixing poles in openings made for the purpose in the flooring. Others fetched the frames, which were leaning against the walls, and fastened them to the poles with strong cords. At the back of the stage a lamplighter was lighting a number of red lamps to produce the reflection of Vulcan's fiery forge. There seemed to be great confusion and hustling about, yet the least movements were regulated. Whilst amidst all this hurry the prompter walked slowly up and down to stretch his legs. "'Your Highness overwhelms me,' Bolognav was saying, still continuing to bow. "'The theatre is not large. We do the best we can. Now if your Highness will deign to follow me—' Count Mifa had already moved off in the direction of the passage leading to the dressing-rooms. The rather sharp incline of the stage surprised him, and his uneasiness was to a great extent caused by these boards which seemed to move beneath his feet. Through the open trap-doors he could see the gas-lights burning beneath. It was quite an underground world, with deep and obscure abysses, from which rose the sound of men's voices and the musty smell peculiar to cellars. But, as he passed along, a slight incident detained him. Two little women dressed for the third act were conversing together before the peephole of the curtain. One of them, leaning forward and widening the opening with her fingers so as to see better, was looking round the house. "'I see him!' she suddenly exclaimed. "'Oh, what a mug!' Bordenave, awfully scandalized, only restrained himself with difficulty from kicking her behind. But the prince smiled, looking delighted and excited at having overheard the words, whilst he gazed tenderly on the little woman who didn't care a fig for his highness. She laughed impudently. However, Bordenave at length induced the prince to follow him. Count Mufa, all in a perspiration, removed his hat. What inconvenienced him most was the closeness of the atmosphere which had become overheated and, so to say, thick, and in which hovered a very strong smell. That odor of behind the scenes, stinking of gas, the glue of the scenery, the moldy dirt in out-of-the-way corners, and the unwashed bodies of the female supers. In the passage the oppressiveness increased. The stench of dirty water, the perfume of scented soaps, escaped from the dressing-rooms, mingled now and again with the poisonous exhalations of foul breaths. As he passed, the Count rapidly glanced up the staircase, struck by the sudden flood of light and warmth which descended upon him. From above came sounds of people washing, laughing, and calling to one another, a great noise of opening and shutting of doors, emitting feminine odors, the musk of the make-up mixed with the smell of perspiring heads of yellowy-red hair. He did not linger, but hastened his footsteps, almost flying under the emotion caused by this sudden glimpse of a world hitherto unknown to him. "'Well, a theatre is a curious place, is it not?' observed the Marquis de Choix with the delighted manner of a man finding himself once more at home. But Bordenave had at length reached Nana's dressing-room at the end of the passage. He coolly turned the door-handle, then standing aside said, "'If your highness will please to enter.' 
there was a cry of a woman taken by surprise, and one saw Nana, naked to the waist, run and hide herself behind a curtain, whilst her dresser, who had been occupied in drying her, was left standing with the towel in her hands. "'Oh, how stupid it is to enter a room like that!' exclaimed Nana from her hiding-place. "'Don't come in. You see very well you cannot come in.' Bordenave seemed put out by this bashfulness. "'Don't run away, my dear. There is not the slightest necessity for doing so,' said he. "'His Highness is here. Come, don't be a child.' and as she refused to appear, being slightly startled still, though nevertheless already beginning to laugh, he added in a grumpy paternal tone of voice, Why, bless me, these gentlemen know very well what a woman's like. They won't eat you. But that is not certain, gallantly observed the prince. Everyone laughed, courtier-like, in a most exaggerated manner. A most witty remark, thoroughly Parisian, according to Bordenave. Nana no longer answered. The curtain shook. No doubt she was making up her mind to appear. Then Count Muffat, who had become very red in the face, looked about him. It was a square room, very low in the ceiling, and hung throughout with some light West Indian material. A curtain of the same stuff, hanging on a brass rod, completely shut off one end of the chamber. Two large windows looked out on the courtyard of the theatre, at a distance of only a few feet from the leprous-looking wall, on to which, in the darkness of the night, the panes of glass reflected a series of yellow squares. A big cheval glass stood opposite a marble dressing-table, which was covered with innumerable glass bottles and pots containing hair-oils, scents, face-powders, and all the ingredients necessary for making up. Approaching the mirror, the Count caught sight of his own red face with beads of perspiration resting on his forehead. He lowered his eyes and proceeded to place himself before the dressing-table on which a basin full of soapy water, some wet sponges, and various little ivory implements scattered about seemed to absorb his mind for a while. The same dizzy feeling he had experienced on the occasion of his visit to Nana in the Boulevard Haussmann again seized hold of him. He seemed to sink deeper into the thick carpet beneath his feet. The gas-jets burning on either side of the dressing-table and the cheval-glass were like the hissing flames of a furnace surrounding his temples. One minute, fearful of fainting away under the influence of all the feminine odor, full of warmth, and rendered ten times more pronounced by the lowness of the ceiling which he encountered for the second time, he seated himself on the edge of the well-padded sofa that occupied the space between the two windows. But he rose up again almost immediately, and returned to the dressing-table, no longer to examine anything, but with a vague expression in his eyes, and thinking of a bouquet of tube-roses which had been allowed to fade in his room a long time ago, their powerful smell having nearly killed him. When tube-roses decay, they emit a kind of human odor. "'Do be quick,' whispered Bordenave, passing his head behind the curtain. The prince, meanwhile, was complacently listening to the Marquis de Choir who, having taken up a hare's foot from the dressing-table, was explaining how actresses put on the powder with it. Satin, sitting in a corner, with her virgin-like face, was staring at the gentleman, whilst the dresser, Madame Jules, was preparing the tunic and tights composing Venus's costume. Madame Jules no longer had an age. Her face had much the appearance of parchment, and her features were immovable, like those of old maids whom no one has ever known to have been young. She had dried up in the heated atmosphere of the dressing-rooms in the midst of the most celebrated legs and breasts of Paris. She always wore a faded black dress, and over her flat and sexless bosom a forest of pins were stuck next to her heart. "'You must excuse me, gentlemen,' 
said Nana, drawing aside the curtain. I was taken by surprise. Everyone turned towards her. She had not dressed herself at all, but had merely buttoned up a little cambric chemisette which only half hid her bosom. When the gentleman surprised her, she had but partly undressed herself, having rapidly doffed her fisherwoman's costume, and the end of her chemise could be seen protruding through the opening in her drawers. With bare arms and shoulders and firm projecting breasts, in her adorable freshness of a plump young blonde, she continued to hold the curtain with one hand, as though ready to draw it again should the least thing occur to scare her. Yes, I was taken by surprise. I shall never dare, stammered she, pretending to be very much confused, blushing down to her neck and smiling in an embarrassed sort of way. Oh, nonsense, exclaimed Baudonev. You look very well as you are. She risked a few more of her hesitating, ingenuous ways, quivering the while as though she was being tickled, and repeating, His Highness honors me too much. I beg His Highness to excuse me for receiving him in such a condition. It is I, madame, who am obtrusive, said the prince, but I could not resist the desire of coming to compliment you. Then, in order to get to her dressing-table, she quietly walked in her drawers through the midst of the gentlemen who all made way for her. Around her substantial hips her drawers looked like a balloon, as, with chest expanded, she continued to greet her visitors with her sly smile. Suddenly she appeared to recognize Count Mufa, and she shook hands with him as a friend. Then she scolded him for not having come to her supper. His Highness deigned to chaff Mufa, who stuttered out an explanation, trembling at the idea of having held in his hot hand for a second those tiny fingers that were as cool as the water they had just been washed in. The Count had dined well at the Prince's, who was a great eater and a splendid drinker. They were both, in fact, slightly tipsy, although they did not show it. To hide his confusion, Mifa was only able to make a remark about the heat. "'How very warm it is in here,' said he. "'However do you manage to exist in such a temperature, madame?' And the conversation was about to start from that, when the sound of loud voices was heard at the door. Bordenav slid aside a little board that closed a convent-like peephole. It was Fontan, who was accompanied by Prullière and Bosque, all three carrying bottles of champagne under their arms and with their hands full of glasses. He knocked, he shouted that it was his saint's day and that he was standing champagne. Nana, with a look, consulted the prince. Why, of course. His highness did not wish to be in anyone's way. He would be only too delighted. But without waiting for their permission, Fontan entered the room, saying, I'm not ill-bred. I stand champagne. But he suddenly caught sight of the prince whom he did not know was there. He stopped short, and putting on a ludicrously solemn look, he said, King Dagobert is outside, and requests the honor of drinking with your royal highness. The prince having smiled, everyone thought it very witty. The dressing-room, however, was too small for all these people. They were obliged to huddle up together, Satin and Madame Jules at the end of the room against the curtain, and the gentlemen close to each other around Nana who was half-naked. The three actors were still in their second-act costumes. While Prullière took off his Swiss admiral's hat, the immense plume of which would have touched the ceiling, Bosque, in his purple cassock and his tin crown, steadied himself on his drunken legs, and greeted the prince like a monarch receiving the son of a powerful neighbor. The wine was poured out and they clinked glasses. "'I drink to your highness,' said old Bosque right royally. "'To the army,' added Prullière. "'To Venus!' shouted Fontan. 
The prince complacently balanced his glass in his hand. He waited and then bowed thrice, murmuring, Madame, Admiral, Sire, and he swallowed the wine at a draught. Count Mifa and the Marquis de Choix had done the same. There was no more jesting now. They were all at court. This theatrical world was making them forget the real one, with a serious farce performed beneath the hot glare of the gas. Nana, forgetting that she was in her drawers and displaying the tale of her chemise, acted the grand lady, Queen Venus, opening her private apartments to the great personages of the state. To every sentence she uttered she added the words, Royal Highness, which she accompanied with curtsies, and she treated those masqueraders, Bosque and Prilière, in the style of a queen accompanied by her prime minister. And no one smiled at the strange mixture of a real prince, heir to a throne, who was drinking a stroller's champagne quite at his ease in this carnival of the gods, in this masquerade of royalty, in the midst of a crowd composed of dressers and strumpets, players and exhibitors of women. Bordenave, carried away by the scene, was thinking of the money he would make if His Highness would only consent to appear like that in the second act of the blonde Venus. "'I say,' he exclaimed, becoming very familiar, "'I'll have all my little women down.' But Nana objected though she was beginning to forget herself. Fontaine attracted her with his grotesque face. She kept close to his side, looking tenderly at him like a pregnant woman with a longing for something the reverse of nice. Suddenly she addressed him most familiarly. Come, pour out, you big ninny. Fontaine filled the glasses again, and they drank, repeating the same toasts. His Highness! The Army! Venus! But Nana motioned for silence. She held her glass high above her head and said, No, no, we must drink to Fontan. It's Fontan Saint's Day. To Fontan, Fontan. Then they clinked glasses a third time, and they all exclaimed, Fontan. The prince, who had noticed the young woman devour the actor with her eyes, bowed to him. Monsieur Fontan, said he with true politeness, I drink to your successes. Meanwhile, His Highness's overcoat was rubbing against the marble dressing-table behind him. It was like being in the depths of an alcove or a narrow bathroom with this vapor from the basin and the sponges, the strong perfume from the scents mixed with the slightly sourish, intoxicating odor of the champagne. The prince and Count Mifa, between whom Nana now found herself, were obliged to hold up their hands so as not to touch her hips or her bosom each time they moved and Madame Jules, without the least sign of perspiration, was waiting, standing as erect as a post, whilst Satin, with all her vice, astonished at seeing a prince and gentleman in evening dress join in a lot of mummers and running after a naked woman, thought to herself that fashionable people were not so virtuous after all. Old Berriot now came along the passage tinkling his bell. When he appeared at the dressing-room door and saw the three actors still in their second-act costumes, he was almost dumbfounded. "'Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen,' he stammered out, "'do be quick. The bell has just rung in the foyer.' "'Never mind,' said Bordenave coolly. "'The audience can wait.' Nevertheless, as the bottles were empty, the actors went up to dress after again bowing. Bosque, having soaked his beard with champagne, had taken it off, and beneath the venerable appendage the drunkard had suddenly reappeared, with the diseased and purple face of an old actor who had taken to drink. He was heard at the foot of the staircase saying to Fontan in his hoarse voice, in allusion to the prince, Now, didn't I astonish him? His Highness, the Count, and the Marquis still remained with Nana. 
Bordeneuve had gone off with Barillot after ordering him not to have the curtain raised without first warning Madame. "'Excuse me, gentlemen,' said Nana, as she proceeded to make up her face and arms again with more than ordinary care on account of the nudity of the third act. The prince seated himself on the sofa with the Marquis de Choir. Only Count Mufa remained standing. The couple of glasses of champagne taken in that suffocating atmosphere had increased their intoxication. Satin, seeing the gentleman shut in with her friend, had discreetly retired behind the curtain, and there she waited, seated on a trunk, tired of doing nothing whilst Madame Jules quietly moved about the room without a word, and without looking either to the right or to the left. End of chapter 5, part 1